my word. I think we'd have to go to heaven to get better worship than that, amen? Had a pretty incredible worship team. We're so blessed as a church. I want to take a moment and talk to those who are joining us online. Thank you for joining us online and being a part of our worship service. I know that some of you live out of town, out of state. There are others of you who are on vacation. Some of you are homebound. Some of you are sick. Some of you are, are taking care of someone who is sick. And I'm so thankful that we have this so that you can be a part of worship with us. But for those of you who live in the Midlands, who are healthy, you're okay, for goodness sakes, take off your pajamas and come join us live. We've got better coffee here than you have at home. And you need the fellowship with other believers. Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to hold it up, whether you have a printed copy like I do, or whether you have a digital copy on your phone, and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth. For what we believe and how we live. Now open up your copy of God's Word with me to the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and turn to the first chapter. This morning we're beginning a 30 plus week look at this incredible Gospel. I believe probably the most important book in the entire Word of God. Larry King was once asked, if you had one person that you could interview, one person from all of human history, who would it be? And Larry King, who was an atheist, said, well, no doubt it would be Jesus. And the reporter said, well, what question would you ask him? And Larry King said, I would ask him, were you really born of a virgin? Because if he were, that would define life for me. Now, did you get that? Did you hear what Larry King said? What he was saying was this. If what the Bible says about Jesus is true, then that defines life. And I agree. The question, who is Jesus, is the most important question you can ever ask. And it's the most important question that you will ever answer and listen. Your answer to that question will not only determine how you live here on this earth, it will determine where you spend all eternity. And, and that's why John wrote this gospel. Now if you want to take a moment and turn with me to John chapter 20, you will see why John wrote this gospel, this book. You see, the purpose of John's gospel is crystal clear. It's to answer that question, the most important question ever asked, who is Jesus? I want you to listen to what he said in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He said, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miracles, signs, they're written so that you may continue, or excuse me, many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. 
but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Now, John lets us know in his gospel that Jesus did a number of other things. He taught a number of other things that aren't recorded in his gospel or any of the other three gospels. And then he makes an amazing statement. The very last verse of the gospel says this. If all the things that Jesus said and did were written in books, the world would not even be able to contain all of those books. You see, Jesus did a whole lot of things while he was here on this earth. But what John put in his 21 chapters are very strategic. He put what he put in this book for a reason. You see, John wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to believe in Jesus so that we can have eternal life. And he uses various parts of Jesus' life to lead us to that point of belief. He uses moments in Jesus' life to reveal his mission. He he tells us about Jesus turning the water into wine, him cleansing the temple, him feeding the 5,000, walking on water. He tells us about Jesus being betrayed and denied, crucified, and, and then resurrected. John uses encounters with people to reveal Jesus' heart. To the religious Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again. To the woman at the well, he said, if you drink the water that I can give, you will never thirst again. To the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, he said, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And to Lazarus, who was dead in a tomb, he said, come out. And then John uses pictures, word pictures, to let us know Jesus' very nature. Someone once said, a picture is worth a thousand words. And that is so very true because because if we can paint a picture with our words, it vividly describes what we want to say. And that's what John does, and that's what we're going to look at for the first eight weeks in our walk through the book of John. John paints pictures of who Jesus is. He tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the bread of life. He is the door through which we must enter. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Lamb of God. He is the light of the world. But the picture that I want us to look at this morning is found in the very first verse in this book. And that is Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Now John uses this expression, this picture in another place as well. In Revelation chapter 19, John says, He, Jesus, wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the Word of God. Now, now the Bible, which we have, is the written Word of God. But Jesus is the living Word of God. Now, why is it that, that John begins his gospel telling us that Jesus is the Word of God? Well, I believe it's because our words 
are the way that we communicate. They're the way that we communicate our thoughts and our hearts with people. When Jesus was born, it was God communicating his mind, his heart to the world. Jesus communicates, he expresses, he, he reveals to us what God is like. If I want to know what God is like, if I want to know how God would act, if I want to know what God would think, if I, I want to know what God would do, all I need to do is look at Jesus. You see, Jesus reveals everything we need to know about God. He is the perfect expression of God. Someone said Jesus is God spelling himself out in a way that, that man can understand. But for the Jews who were reading John's gospel, they thought something more than just that. When they heard that Jesus was the Word, it took them all the way back to the very first chapter of the Bible. And they remembered that it was the Word of God through which God created the heavens and the earth. Over and over again in that very first chapter we read, And God said, and God said, and God said. They, they remember reading in Psalms, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. They remember reading over and over again, the word of the Lord came to, to Abraham, to Elijah, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to many others. Jesus was saying to the Jews, I want to introduce you to the word of God. But to the Greeks, this word, the word, had a totally different meaning. Heraclitus, who was the father of Greek philosophy and thought, taught that the universe operated according to a set of constant principles. And he gave to that ordered set of constant principles the name Logos, or Word. The idea became accepted among Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, all of them. And they saw the Word, or the Logos, as this overarching principle that if rightly understood, could make absolute sense of life. But the problem was there was no authoritative way of comprehending the word. So what John is saying here to the Greek is this. I know that, that you know there is this word that makes sense out of life. Let me introduce you to the word. The one who can make sense of your life. And, and so... You see, John tells us that Jesus is the Word. And in these first few verses, John paints a picture of, of three incredible truths about who Jesus is, the Word of God. First of all, he tells us that Jesus is the pre-existent Word. Listen to the first three verses. It says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. Now these verses show us several truths about Jesus, the Word of God. It tells us first of all that He is eternal. In the beginning, the Word already existed. That word beginning means commencement. Some translate the phrase before the very first things or before anything else. This phrase takes us all the way back to the beginning of all things. Now the reality is we don't know how old the universe is. 
Some people say it's billions of years old. Some people say it's millions of years old. There's others that say it's just thousands of years old. We don't really know how old the universe is. But what we do know is that before the universe existed, there was Jesus, the Word of God. Before all things, there was the Word. David the psalmist said it this way. He said, before the mountains were born, Before you gave birth to the earth and the world from beginning to end, you are God. If you could go back to to the very first moment of time, when time itself began, before there was anything else, and you stood on the edge of eternity, you would find Jesus the Word. In fact, no matter how far you go back into eternity past, Jesus will always be there. There was never a time that Jesus didn't exist. Now, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. I mean, some of you may can can fathom billions of years. I can't. But I don't think any of us can fathom eternity. Eternity is without time. Everything that, that we perceive, including the earth, the sun, the stars, the entire universe, had a beginning, but the Word, Jesus, had no beginning. He is the one who began all things. And so don't ever think that Jesus had his beginning back in a stable in Bethlehem. He existed before he was born. John is is letting us know that from the very first words of his gospel that Jesus has always been. There's never been a time when Jesus wasn't here and there will never be a time when Jesus is not here. He is our eternal, everlasting, constant. And John doesn't try to explain that truth. He simply proclaims it. And by the way, I want you to listen to me. Everybody in this room today is either going to believe that matter is eternal and we are the product of chance, or God is eternal, and we are the product of divine design. Those are the only two choices. Either matter is eternal, and we're just here by random chance in some evolutionary line, or God is eternal, and God has a plan for this world, and God has a plan for you. And so the word is eternal. And then he tells us that the word is divine. Now these next two phrases deal with Jesus, the word's divinity. Now I want us to start with the second phrase first. It says the word was God. Now Jehovah's Witnesses say the word was a God. They add that that word a there, but it's not in the Greek language. That's not what it says. The Mormons say that the word became God, but that's not what it says. It says the word was God. Listen carefully. Jesus always has been and Jesus always will be God. Now throughout history, Jesus has been called many things. He's been called a a teacher, a prophet, a philosopher, a miracle worker. Stuart Mill, John Stuart Mill called him this. He said he is a preeminent genius probably the greatest moral reformer and martyr who ever existed on earth. He is the ideal representative and guide of humanity. But listen, Jesus is more than the preeminent genius. Jesus is more than the great moral reformer. 
Jesus is God. C.S. Lewis in his, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, said this. He said, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim as God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, it's important for those of us who are Christians to nail down certain beliefs. The pillars of our faith, essential truths, and this is one of them. This truth that Jesus is God is fundamental to everything we believe as Christians. Jesus was not just a good man or a great man. He is God. He did not become God. He was not made God. He did not attain Godhood because of the things he did. He was, he is, and he always has been God. The scriptures teach that over and over. But then let's look at the phrase directly before this one. It says the word was with God. And that word with is the Greek word prosopon, which means toward or face to face. And so what this is saying is God the Father and God the Son have been face to face for all eternity. Some people have this idea that God created humanity because he needed a relationship. God was lonely, so he created us to to fill that vacuum of loneliness that he had. But God wasn't lonely. God has lived in an eternal relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this introduces us to uh, another truth, the principle of the triune nature of God. You see, the Bible says clearly that there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And yet, in Genesis chapter 1, 1, the very first verse of the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. In the beginning, God. Elohim, plural, created, singular, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, this plural God singularly created the heavens and the earth. A plural God working as one, the triune God. Now, do you understand the triune nature of God? No, you don't. I don't either. But I think I can help you better understand it. I, I, I meant to stop at the grocery store and get a pie, but I forgot. And so I want you to think about a pie. I want you to think about a pecan pie. That's my favorite. And as you think about pecan pies, remember pecan pies are my favorite. And so if you want to bake a pecan pie and bring it to my house, you can. If you say, I don't 
bake, you can go to the bakery and buy one, and you can bring it to my house. But we've got this pecan pie. The pecan pie is filled with brown sugar and all kind of sweetness on the inside, and it has this pecan crust on the top of it, and you have the, the pie crust on the bottom. And, and that pecan pie, it, it's the exact same through and through. It, it doesn't matter where you cut that pie, it's the exact same. You have the brown sugar, you have the pie crust, you have pecans on top. It's the same through and through. But I want you to think that in your home you have three people. And so you've cut that pecan pie. Yes, we're going to eat the whole pie in one sitting. You've cut that pecan pie into three equal parts. Now you have one pecan pie, three pieces. Every single piece of that pecan pie is just like the other piece of pecan pie. They're made up of the exact same thing. But each piece of that pecan pie is distinct, it's separate, it's individual. And yet, each of those three pieces of pecan pie make up that one pecan pie. And that's kind of how it is with the Trinity. You have God, the pecan pie, and then you have the different slices of the pecan pie, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all the same, all equal, and yet they are distinct. And so the next time you're trying to figure out Trinity, just think about pecan pie and bring me a piece of pecan pie. Now, if that doesn't help you better understand the Trinity, think about it like this little girl who, who described the Trinity this way. She said that it's three and one, one and three, and the one in the middle died for me. It's an easy way to understand the Trinity. It's three in one, it's one in three, and the one in the middle, Jesus, died for me. So the word is eternal, the word is divine, and then third, the word is all-powerful. Notice that next phrase, it says, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. Now in the Hebrew this is called a parallelism. He's saying, I'm going to tell you this one way, and then I'm going to tell you this another way so that you understand what I'm saying. It's kind of like an exclamation point. And what John is saying here is the word Jesus made everything. Without Jesus, there would be nothing. Colossians 1.16 says, For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and, and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Everything was created through him and for him. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains 200 billion stars. Think about that. Our one little galaxy contains 200 billion stars. Stars And scientists estimate that there could be billions of other galaxies. And the word Jesus created them all. And everything in them. And he created them out of nothing. Now you and I were created in the image of God. God is a created creator God. And so God has given us creative abilities. He makes us creative. We're made in his image. But when we create things, when we make things, we have to have things. We can't create something out of nothing. I can't put you on stage and say, okay, 
I want you to build me a car with everything that's in front of you right here. You couldn't do it. Because you can't make something out of nothing. But God has the power, Jesus has the power to make everything out of nothing. But listen, the word didn't only make the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He made you. And he created you with a purpose. And that purpose is to love him and serve him forever. Now listen to me for just a second. If Jesus created you and made you, then don't you think he would know best what would make you happy? If Jesus created you, if he made you, then don't you think he would know what would fulfill you the most? Your creator? You see, we're going through life trying to do our thing when we should be trying to discover God's thing for our life. So Jesus is the pre-existent word. But then something happened. The pre-existent word became the incarnate word. You see, Jesus is not only the pre-existent word, Jesus is the incarnate word. Uh, listen to what it says in, in verse 14. It says, so the word became human, became flesh. I want you to Think about that for just a moment. The Word, the eternal Word, became a human being, took on flesh and bone, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only. God, the eternal God, became a man. I don't know about you. But that absolutely boggles my mind. The God who created everything out of nothing took on flesh and bone, mortal body, and became like us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. Did you get that? The Apostle Paul said, this is the great mystery of the faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. John MacArthur said the incarnation, God becoming a man, is the central miracle of Christianity. Robert Moore said in Jesus, divine omnipotence moved in a human arm. In Jesus, divine wisdom was cradled in a human brain. In Jesus, divine love throbbed in a human heart. In Jesus, divine compassion glistened in a human eye. In Jesus, divine grace poured forth from human lips. When Jesus came into the world, he became the visible expression of the invisible God. He came to reveal the Father to us. You see, if you want to know what God is like, what God would say, what God would do, all you have to do is look to Jesus. John 1.18 goes on to say, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son is himself God and is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So Jesus is the preexistent Word. Jesus is the incarnate Word. But there's another truth we see in these first verses, and that is Jesus is the saving Word. Jesus didn't just come to earth to reveal to us what the Father is like. 
Jesus came to earth to restore us to the Father. You see, the Bible teaches in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, that, that the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, who were created in God's image and God's likeness, who had a perfect relationship with the Father, chose to rebel against the Father. And that, that broke the relationship that humanity has with the Father. But Jesus came and died and was resurrected so that that relationship could be restored. I want you to listen to what it says in verses 4 through 13. It says, the word gave life to everyone that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created. The world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people. And even they rejected him. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or a plan, but but a birth that comes from God. Now these verses introduce us to another picture of Jesus. Jesus is the light. And I want you to hold on to that because we're going to unpack all of that next week. But I want you to see in these verses what John teaches us about Jesus being the saving word. The first thing he tells us is that Jesus was revealed to all. Jesus has been revealed to all. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, God sent John the Baptist to tell about the light so everyone might believe. Did you get that? So that everyone might believe. Who? Who? Everyone. How many? How many? Now let me ask you a question. Are you an everyone? You see... Jesus came so that everyone might believe. Peter said it this way. He said, God isn't willing for anyone to perish. He wants everyone to repent. Paul said it this way. He said, God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, God's desire is that you be saved. You are an everyone. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you're living right now. God loves you and God wants to save you. Some of you may be thinking, God could never forgive me. Oh, yes, he can. And yes, he will. You may say, God could never love me. Oh, he already loves you. In spite of what you're doing, he loves you. And he wants you to be a part of his every, his, a part of his eternal family. Now notice what it says here. John the Baptist, John the baptizer, was sent from God to tell the world about the light, Jesus, the word, so that everyone can believe. John's task was to tell people about Jesus. Do you think that Christ followers today have the same task? We do. 
And so my question for you is this. If John the Baptist was to tell people about Jesus because God wants everyone to believe, then who have you told about Jesus this week? This week, who have you told about Jesus? What, how many conversations have you had with people about what Jesus has done for you, how he saved you? What about this month, the last 30 days? Had any gospel conversations? Have you, have you shared what Jesus has done for you with anybody? What about this year, since January the 1st? Have you taken the time to, to sit down and tell anyone that Jesus saves? That he has a plan? It could be your children, it could be your parents, it could be your, your neighbors, it could be a friend at school, a co-worker. Have you told anyone? You may say, I don't know what to do. Well, a good place to start is to just get some of those invite cards and start passing them out. You can do that. I mean, anybody can put a card in someone's hand and run. <laughs> and you're planting a seed. You could, you could say, hey, do you know what Jesus has done for you? And if they say no, and you go, well, I don't know how to tell you, but you can come to church with me Sunday. I'll find someone who can. I mean, if we start telling people about Jesus, we'll see more people come to know Jesus. Jesus has been revealed to everyone. But Jesus has been rejected by many. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says he came into the very world he created, but the world, the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. Some people don't recognize him. They're in ignorance. Some people reject him. They make the willful decision to reject the word. I've got to be honest with you. Jesus has radically changed my life. And on this side of the cross, I, I can't imagine how anybody could reject the mercy and the grace of God that has been revealed in Jesus. And yet, the Bible teaches that the majority of people, they do. But even though they do, we're supposed to share with everyone. That takes me to the third thing we see here. Even though Jesus is rejected by many, he's received by some. Verse 12 says, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They were reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now that word translated believe in verse 12, it's not the normal word that's translated believe or faith. That, that Greek word is pisteo. Typically, when you see that word believe or faith in the New Testament, it's that Greek word, pisteo. The word that is used right here is the Greek word, lambano. It means to choose, to receive, to make a willful decision. You see, each and every one of us have to make a willful decision to choose Jesus for ourselves. You have to decide, 
to follow Jesus. He's not going to force himself upon you. When you get saved, you may feel like you had no choice because the grace of God was drawing you so strong and you knew that you were a sinner and nothing could hold you back and you just came into Jesus' arms. And yet the fact of the matter is Jesus isn't going to force anyone to be a part of his family. We can choose to receive him or we can choose to reject him. And when we receive him, the Bible says that we become a child of God. We are born into his family, not through a natural birth, but through a supernatural birth. John talks about this in John chapter 3. The Spirit of God brings us into God's family. We're made new. And so my question for you as we close this morning is twofold. First of all, have you recognized the word? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he's done for you? And then second, have you received the word? Each and every one of us must make a willful decision. Now, I don't know the heart of anyone in this room today. But if you're here and you have not made the decision to choose Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that's the most important thing that you need to do today. It's not something that your parents can do for you. It's not something that a pastor can do for you. It's something that you must do yourself. You say, how do I choose Jesus? Well, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against God and I repent. I turn from sin. God, I don't want to live that way in rebellion against you anymore. We place our trust in Jesus. We believe that when Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross and rose from the grave, he made the payment for our sin. And then we surrender our life to him. We get out of the driver's seat. We say, God, you take control. Wherever you lead, whatever you want, I want to live for you. And when we do that, I'm just here to tell you, a miracle happens. We're born again. We're made new. We become a part of God's family. It's as if, it's as if his DNA is planted in us. And he changes us from the inside out. Our desire, what we want, changes the way that we live. So my question is, have you received Jesus? If you're here and you haven't, there's nothing more important this morning. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed, if you're here and you know in your heart that you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus, and you're ready to do that today, then I want to invite you to pray this prayer to Him. Dear God, I humbly come to you today acknowledging my sin. I've lived in rebellion 
but I'm tired of it. Forgive me. Jesus, I do believe you came to this earth. You died on the cross. You rose from the grave so my sins could be forgiven. I'm trusting you to save me. Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. Come into my heart. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.